I, I guess it was um, a little earlier than this, one year ago today that I woke up in the ICU at Hinsdale Hospital. I'd had a heart attack the night before. Uh, I was sorely tempted to go back and have that double beef cheeseburger just to tempt fate last night. I didn't. But I really was struck again today as I woke up what an amazing grace life is. You know, whether it's hot or it's cold, just the chance to breathe and to interact in this world and to um, discover more of God and to grow in love and to be in relationship. This is an immense privilege to witness the beauties of creation that Tracy talked about. And uh, I guess I'm finding myself these days living with maybe a a greater sense of the um, fragility of this thing we have. And uh, some of you know this from your own experience. And Time is precious. You know, it really is precious. The people we have, the opportunities in front of us are very, very precious. And uh, I think it's particularly in that light that, that what we've been studying over these past months together, as we've looked at the way of Jesus, marked out by his great commandments to us, uh, that this way is, is more important than ever for us. Uh, and so I hope that sometime over the past year, maybe many times, you found yourself quickened in your passion to really put these things into practice. Uh, next week, we come to the end of that whole series. We've been on this nearly year-long journey. Uh, we're going to close it out with um, Christ's great commission to us as his disciples And this morning, I want to just reflect with you uh, in a second-to-last installment, if I can, on on a topic that I think is of enormous significance to all of us, because it it focuses in on uh, a theme that we hear all the time in contemporary culture. I want to think with you on what it means to live a truly influential life. Um, the focus of our study today is what, it, what Jesus has to say about achieving genuine greatness. Genuine greatness. And I think that if, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us will admit that this idea of greatness is intriguing to us. Uh, it explains uh, why our eye is so often drawn to lists of the greatest players or the greatest schools or the greatest places to live, and we think to ourselves, gosh, I wonder what it takes to go there, to get there. To, 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 I wonder who is there. Um, when politicians these days speak out about restoring the greatness of America, uh, we tend to pay attention. Uh, when business pundits talk about the greatness of particular companies or products, we often take, take notes. When reviewers speak about uh, this really great movie or program or, or, or restaurant, we're all ears. The very word great or greatness is something which in, intrigues us and inspires our attention. Maybe Americans more than any other people on the planet alive today are fond of or in love with the thought of greatness. We're curious about who or what is or what will be number one in this world. And I think if we're, again, really honest with ourselves, we'd like to be in that spot. We'd like to be exalted to that place of great 
influence and position ourselves if it's possible. We work at training our kids so that they can go even further than we've gone before. We think a lot about, at least I know I do, I think a fair amount about where we or our, as a church or our town is or our company is or even our country is in terms of the rankings when compared to other people on this particular scale or or that particular slide. We would rather be first than last, most of us. We would rather be greatest than least. We'd rather be exalted than ignored. And so most of us hunker down, press on in life, trying in one way or another to achieve greatness in some shape. The challenging question is how to really define greatness. Um, as I, I listen to conversations that are going on in our culture today, uh, in politi- political life, in celebrity culture, maybe even in your own home or, or your town, when we listen carefully to the conversations that are happening, greatness is increasingly being defined in terms of how many people we've been able to rise above. Um, In terms of how many other towns are below us, how many other countries or teams or people are below us on the list. Greatness is being defined in these relative ways. And people today are are hunkering down more than ever, just trying to, to, to move up that ladder often by, by pushing or pulling other people down. That's what gossip is often about. It's about trying to feel better about ourselves by pushing somebody else down or pulling them down. We're so often today trying to maximize our potential by minimizing other people's potential. And, and much of the talk these days is about gaining position or pleasure or power over other people. In government, in civic life, in many marriages even, a quest for the commonwealth, for what we could all achieve together through mutual sacrifice, is getting edged out by this struggle for personal control, for for my tribe's control. As a society, we've become very tolerant of, in fact, even tantalized sometimes by people who walk over or elbow out or shut down or write off or even betray other people in pursuit of their own personal greatness for themselves or maybe for their tribe. We even have reality shows these days that exalt this kind of behavior, that make it prime time interest. The greats of our time are increasingly thought to be those who can compel the most other people to listen to them, to follow them, to serve them in their whims or to pursue their welfare. And less and less, I think, today are we thinking in terms of carving out a future through mutual submission, through mutual support and sacrifice and striving. Less and less is this our mentality. And more and more we view life as this zero-sum game in which I need to play to win. And that's going to mean you're going to lose. You or your tribe or your class or your whatever is going to have to suffer. Now this view of greatness is actually older than than we might think. 
On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Christ gathered with his disciples to celebrate what would be his very last supper with them. And, and the disciples, at this particular point, were anticipating that life was about to get dramatically better. They were about to take a, a, a huge leap up the ladder of greatness. They had been following Jesus for three years, as you know. They had been part of the Jesus party, the Jesus movement. And um, they had seen that movement gaining steam. They had seen the crowds getting larger, the interest in Jesus getting more and more intense. At the time we meet them in our text for today, uh, they had just come from this massive rally on Palm Sunday in which Jesus was being hailed. And the disciples were getting more and more excited because it, it appeared to them that their party was about to win control of the country. And the disciples believed they were finally going to get the position and the pleasures and the power that they'd longed for. They would finally rise above others on the long list of life. And their conversation began to turn to which of them would have the highest spots, the greatest seats, the best position in the new administration. Which of them would be exalted in the coming order? Luke 22, verse 24 reads, And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And it was at that particular moment that Jesus chose to draw a clear contrast between greatness as defined by the world and genuine greatness as God sees it and as God rewards it. And to understand the words we're about to read from the lips of Jesus, it helps to know that in the ancient world, the most important people, the greatest people, were the oldest, the wisest, and the wealthiest. Okay? That was where, that's what determined where you ranked on the ladder, on the list, was how old you were, how wise you were, how wealthy you were. And, and in the ancient world, the oldest, wisest, and wealthiest got to sit at the dinner table, at the banquet table in particular, and be waited upon by the youngest, the greenest, or the poorest people in the room or in the town. And this arrangement was an unquestioned practice. And you could tell who was great and who was not great by who was at the table and who was doing the serving of them. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes that model and he turns it on its head. He takes off his robe, as most of you know the story. He wraps a towel around his waist. He stoops down and he washes the feet of the disciples. It's a job that only the lowest servant does. He then personally serves them. He breaks the bread, he pours the cup, and he personally waits on them at the table. Uh, again, a job that only slaves did. Only the youngest, the greenest, the poorest would do. Though he is the oldest, wisest and wealthiest one in the room. Actually, he is the oldest, 
wisest, wealthiest being in the universe. And he just happens to be in that room. Though he is the exalted one, he takes for himself the jobs that only the very least in human society would do. Jesus makes it clear in this way that in his kingdom, greatness will be measured not in terms of how many people you can get to look up at and serve you, but in terms of how many people you can get under in order to serve. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, over the Gentiles. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, you, my disciples, are not to be like that. You are not to to define and pursue greatness the way the world does. You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules, even those of you who have ruling positions in, 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 in homes, in businesses, in the political world, in churches, even those of you who rule should be like one who serves, says Jesus. For who, who is greater? The one who is at the table in the seat of honor or, 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 or the one who serves? Isn't it the one who's at the table, he says? Isn't he asking asking that question? Isn't it me? (laughs) Is he saying? Isn't it me? The one who's sitting at the head of this table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. For the Son of Man, the ruler of the universe, came not to be served, but to serve, said Jesus, and to give his life a ransom for many. Are we getting this? I mean, are we getting this? And, and, I, and I think it's fair to ask the question because this is hard to get. I, I mean, the disciples had just traveled three years with Jesus, right? They had bunked down with him every single night. They'd walked with him every single mile. They had been with him all this time, and they still don't get it, right? They're still debating amongst themselves who's going to have the best seat in the new administration, right? They still don't get it. So maybe we'll be forgiven for taking a while to figure this out. But to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to walk the way of Jesus, requires that we are progressively, increasingly, getting what Jesus is saying to us here. Christ is saying, if you want to follow my way, you must do as I do. It's really simple. In fact, the word disciple means that. It means imitator. You must imitate the way I rule. You must imitate the way I I roll in life, is what Jesus is saying. Whoever among you wants to be first must become last, said Jesus, and the servant of all. That's the way it has to be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you 
must be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled in the kingdom, says Jesus. And whoever humbles herself will be exalted. As far as people go, I guess you'd have to say that Morton Kondrecki was one of the exalted ones. I guess you'd have to say that in terms of the rankings of influence and prestige in our society, Mort Kondrecki was one of the great ones, is one of the great ones. I don't know how many of you know that name. If I put his photograph up on the screen, I wish I had, um, you would instantly recognize him. You've seen his face a lot. You may have read what he's written or heard his opinion. Uh, Kondrecki, uh, is a journalist. He has been with the Chicago Sun-Times, National Public Radio, Wall Street Journal. He headed up Newsweek's Washington Bureau. He was a White House correspondent. Uh, He has gained national visibility, this is how you'd know his face, as a regular on television's The McLaughlin Group and The Beltway Boys. He has run the whole spectrum of politics. He is a household face And when he sits down at a table in a restaurant, people are turning and noticing he's there. They're thinking about coming up and asking his opinion, maybe for him to sign a napkin. And when he sits down at the table in one of these television shows, millions of people wait upon him. They wait upon his word, his will, his take on where things are going. He's one of the great ones. About 10 years ago, Mort's vision of personal greatness began to change. And it underwent a change as um, his wife, Millie, began to suffer some unusual difficulties. And in an interview, um, Kondrecki shares the story as follows. Millie had beautiful handwriting. I mean, really beautiful handwriting. And she was writing a check, and I was just sitting there, and she couldn't form the letter K, right. It it looked fine to me, but she insisted, no, there is something wrong. Later on, she had this, this tremor in the little finger of her right hand. Just a little tremor, and it wouldn't go away. And then her foot would would sort of wobble when she was driving on the pedal. It would just kind of wobble uncontrollably. Millie, he says... She'd been a a counselor at a neurology center in Bethesda, Maryland. She was helping families who were facing chronic neurological diseases. And one day when she was working there, she was complaining of some of these weird things that were happening. And a doctor who worked with her there gave her a medicine called Symmetrel, but he didn't tell her what it really was. And then she called me up at work one day totally distraught. I mean, hysterical in a way like I had never heard her before. And she said, you've got to come home right away. Something terrible has happened. So I raced on home. There she was standing in the bedroom, says Kondrecki, with this bottle in her hand. And she said, 
This is a Parkinson's medicine. A Parkinson's medicine. It can't be Parkinson's. I've seen Parkinson's. It's a horrible disease. I won't be able to talk. I won't be able to walk. I won't be able to swallow. I won't be able to eat. You'll have to take me to the bathroom. I'll be totally dependent. You won't love me anymore. You'll leave me, Mort. And I guess Mort goes on about 50% of the time that's what happens. Somebody leaves the person with such a serious disease. I had to convince her that I was not going to bug out. That I was there for the duration. The interviewer asks Mort how he's coping with all this, all this time later. And Kondrecki says, you know, you just ask God's help Every day. In fact, multiple times a day. I could not do this, he says, without God's help. I pray for help and for strength and for deliverance for Millie. I've asked God innumerable times, you know, so so what is my purpose here on earth now? I mean, what's my purpose I'm hoping that he'll add this new, grandiose dimension to this. But he never does. God never does. The message always comes back the same, says Kondrecki. Your job here, Mort, is to take care of Millie. Life is really precious, and time is short, and I hope you'll permit me to be very blunt with you as I close. God and the world actually agree on the subject of our purpose in life. They agree. Your purpose, that of everybody you know, is to fulfill their God-given potential. It is to leave a legacy. It is to make a mark. It is to be a creative influence in this world. The world and God agree on this fundamental purpose. It is the pathway to that greatness where the world and God separate. It is the nature of the greatness that is different. The world says... You will be great by being the optimum consumer. And God says, no. It's actually by becoming the better steward. The world says your calling is to be as upwardly mobile as you possibly can be. And God says, actually, actually greatness is marked by how downwardly mobile you choose to be following my example. The world says your aim should be to get over 
and to control as many people as you can while Jesus says, your job is to get under and to care for as many people as you reasonably can. Serve them in my name, says Jesus. Serve them as I have. Suffer with them. Support them. Exhort them and encourage them. Endure them. Comfort them. Challenge them. Lay down your life for them if necessary, remembering we're all dependent upon one another. Every one of us. Where is Christ calling you to be that servant in the days to come? Where, even now, is his Holy Spirit saying to you, take the form of a servant in this relationship, in this place? The question is important because every day you and I face this fork in the road between the world's route to greatness and the way of influence that Jesus has blazed for us, the way of hunkering down in order to go up, or the way of humbling down in order to go up. Which way? Do you want to turn in the days ahead? As the band comes up, listen to the words of the scriptures. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross to save others. Therefore, says the scriptures. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we, following him, do likewise. Amen.